Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Williams produced some formidable cars in the 1980s and 90s, yet for all its dominance in F1 during that time, it went 20 years without winning the Monaco Grand Prix. Juan Pablo Montoya ended a drought that stretched all the way back to Keke Rosberg in 1983 when he triumphed in the 2003 race. But as we'll hear later, Williams nearly lost this one too in the closing laps. This was also the year that the Monaco track as we know it today was born, with land reclaimed from the harbour to reprofile the final sector and create room for something resembling a proper pit lane. And it was a race missed by Jensen Button, who crashed so heavily in practice on Saturday that he'd been knocked out and doctors wouldn't let him take part in the rest of the weekend. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back on all of that and much more, we have Ben Anderson and Karun Chanduk. Karun, good to have you back on board for the first time in Series 9. So tell us, when you think back to Monaco 2003, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's got to be... That middle stint from Montoya, isn't it? Or the second stint after Ralph pitted and got out of the way. And he just went nuts. Like he unleashed some incredible pace and came out, I can't remember how many seconds in front, but he was miles ahead of Ralph. And uh, yeah, that was, the, that was the key part of the race for him. Yeah, always decisive in Monaco, what you do around the pit stops. Uh, ben, you beat everyone else to the punch in volunteering for this one. So what stands out for you? <laughs> well, I've got a bit of a soft spot for the 2003 season generally because it it really helped re-energise my love of Formula One after the Ferrari dominance and particularly the mockery of 2002 where they were kind of taking the piss out of Formula One a bit with team orders and what have you. Um, but from this race specifically... Um, Montoya taking only his second win, having had, I think, 10 pole positions by this point. I think that's a, a record that Charles Leclerc would be very proud of. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's Leclerc first time around, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's hear some memories from our audience as well then. Stuart Coulter says Williams finally ending its losing streak at Monaco. And Carl Lawrence says Williams breaking their jinx in the Principality. Christopher Foxen says it was the first time I recall seeing Williams so dominant and pulling away at the start of a race running first and second since the glory days of Rothmans and Renault. Aidan Dulori says seeing Montoya win from Kimi and Michael felt like the start of a changing of the guard in F1. Kevin McKenzie says it was one of Montoya's best races. Colin Lewis was there that day. Always like hearing from those of you who are at these races. Lots of you mentioned Button's crash, including Mark Martin, Liam, JSR, Chris Parrott, Matt, Graham Cagill and Thomas Knight. And John Hainan says, I was there in the Paddock Club on a work gig and had a lovely chat with Jacques Villeneuve. That's one way to get yourself in the show. 
If you want to get early access to every new episode of the show and more bonus content than ever before, then come join the Race Members Club. It's only $24.99 a year or $2.99 a month, and we're working harder than ever this year to make it worth every penny. So if you'd like to check it out, look for the link in the description of this episode. And while you're checking out links in the description, come join our community on X if you haven't already. At the time of recording, we're approaching 2,000 members in there. So by the time this is released in our main feed, there's every chance we'll have surpassed that and we'd love to have you join that massive group of Bring Back V10's fans. Don't hesitate to get your questions in for our series finale, as always, where you can ask us anything about the V10 era. Get them in nice and early to Bring Back V10's at the-race.com as we'll be recording that episode a few weeks before it comes out so we can avoid F1 launch season getting in the way. So the earliest questions we get have the best chance of being included. So of all the plugs out the way, let's take ourselves back to Monaco in 2003. Let's start with some engine chat, as we can never pass up an opportunity to talk about V10s. Ahead of the Monaco weekend, Renault announced it would be ditching its radical 110-degree engine in favour of a more conventional 90-degree design. Renault team boss Flavio Briatore said this was part of a wish list from technical director Mike Gascoigne, but it was also in reaction to new rules for 2004 that meant each engine had to last an entire weekend. Renault chairman Patrick Four said, given the work it had taken to make the, the wide V-angle engine reliable, it was the most reasonable solution to go back to a more conventional design to quickly achieve reliability and power for 2004. He said it would mean less risk and called it an insurance for the future. Karun, do you think this was a smart move for Renault to effectively go back to convention here with its V10 engine? I think you'd have to say it was because when you look at how those next three years unfolded. I mean, arguably, they won the championship in 2005 because of that reliability. Um, you know, McLaren had the faster car in, in 05, uh, which was the second year of this, shall we say, going back to convention engine. And Renault won that year because of that reliability and had enough performance in it. You know, the car and the weight distribution was really well suited to the Michelin tires, the way Fernando Alonso drove the car was well suited to the, the front end of the Muslim tire. Um, but they also had that amazing launch, didn't they? That traction, low-end torque, and the, 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 the way that um, the car's weight distribution was, was pivotal to them really being successful in 2005 and six along with the tires. So, yeah, I think in, in the end, you have to, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight, which they didn't then, and you'd have to say it worked out well. I'm fully on board of us exploiting our benefit of hindsight when we judge all the decisions oh, yeah. these people had to take back then. <laughs> exactly. Just before Monaco, the long-awaited MP McLaren MP418 had its first test, although across the first two days it only managed 27 laps at Paul Ricard. It managed 30 on the final day, with test driver Alex Wurtz going faster than fellow tester Pedro De La Rosa did in the MP417D that was carried over from 2002. However, Verts admitted years later that this was the only time the MP418 ever went quicker than its predecessor. And he said that over his years in sports car racing, he learned that he was a bit of a specialist at Paul Ricard. So maybe that explained some of it. Adrian Newey spoke about the delays to the new car, which we devoted a whole episode to back in our first series, saying McLaren probably underestimated the difficulties of manufacturing a new car at the same time as racing the existing one. 
He said the design of the car had been ready since February, but manufacturing had taken longer than expected. At this point, McLaren was still hoping to have the car ready to race at the Nürburgring, which was only two races after Monaco. Now, Ben, we know that we wouldn't see this car, or we'd see it in 2004 with a different name on it. Yeah. But at this point, when it's just broken cover, it's just run for the first time, what was the anticipation level like for the MP4 18? Well, I think massively growing, because Newey had obviously gone for broke a bit with the packaging of it. They were having problems because of that. You know, a lot of the stories about how it was breaking down and catching fire because the rear end was all too tight. Very uh, similar to what happened later with the Red Bull in 2014 when they had the new power unit and, and couldn't get the Renault matched properly with that car. So it looked distinctive with its tight packaging and its narrow nose. And also, although it wasn't uncommon to have delays to a new car, that sort of point in Formula 1 and Ferrari, I think it started the last two seasons with with the old car and been successful and obviously McLaren were doing the same thing you then have the extra hype of the debut being delayed so Ron has said oh it's going to be it's going to race in April this is just before Monaco and then it doesn't and then he says oh it's going to be sometime between Canada and Silverstone and that's the next race so you've got this almost artificial expectation being built up by the team. And obviously McLaren have been quite successful with their old car as well. They've won the first two races of the season. They're in the fight. So you think, well, if if this is such a big step on what they've just done, then when they finally hit the track with this car in season, they're going to going to wipe the floor with everybody. And of course, the reality was somewhat different because Newey had overstepped and then you've got the whole political situation behind the scenes and Ron being Ron and not forgiving Newey for past transgressions in his eyes and... It's such a shame, really, because it felt like the McLaren of that period had all the ingredients to be successful. And obviously, Raikkonen gets so close to winning the championship in this year, which is such a good season. And you know, maybe if if they committed properly one way or, or the other, he might have got over the line. But they just made work so hard for themselves. And of course, you know, they don't really get back into the mix until going up against Renault in 05 in that season that Karun mentioned. One person who wasn't buying into all the hype around the new McLaren was Michael Schumacher. He said he was not dramatically worried about the McLaren because Ferrari had a masterpiece of its own. He said the MP4 18 didn't look out of the ordinary and uh, it wasn't making Ferrari think that we have forgotten something on our car so we should be worried. Newey was asked about those comments in Monaco, saying, It depends what you call out of the ordinary, doesn't it? It sounds a bit of a funny comment to me, but I don't know what he meant by it. Karun, given that most people were blown away by the appearance of the MP4 18 because it looked so different at the time, do you think Schumacher was just trying to downplay McLaren's new baby? I guess so. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I'm somewhat confused by it as well because it, it was a weird time, wasn't it? We had um, the big McLaren versus Ferrari rivalry and it all, it, it, it didn't boil over. You know, it felt like there was still... You know, it was it was respectable, unlike the Benetton versus Williams stuff of of '94, uh, or or you know Villeneuve versus Schumacher, which turned into a a mudslinging battle by the end of '97. It was relatively respectable, wasn't it? The Hacker and Schumacher years, um, and then McLaren weren't quite there in a in the championship fight 2001, 2002, and this year with the old car they were in the fight. And I don't know if this was Schumacher being Schumacher, playing his sort of psychological mind games. And um, he did that, didn't he? He sort of used this sort of dismissive tone almost to 
to bat away any any opposition from people and um you know he just ha- he had this incredible confidence that he carried combined with this um you know th- this momentum that at that time they they were the steamroller coming into 2003 and then all of a sudden the old mclaren is is a championship threat um you know and and i think yeah maybe michael was just trying to play play his usual michael games but uh doesn't sound like new he was too bothered was he <laughs> looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Over at BAR, the news coming into the weekend was that Jensen Button and Jacques Villeneuve had made up after falling out before the season when Villeneuve made some comments about not respecting Button. Button said in Monaco that the drivers had said a few things that were a bit pathetic really but had to be said and they were now working together well. Villeneuve said the air had been cleared and team boss David Richards said Button had earned Villeneuve's respect. Jensen talked about this in his book. We'll save some of it for when we do Australia 2003, because they had a specific falling out there. But on Villeneuve's attitude towards him, uh, Jensen wrote, He didn't speak to me. He wouldn't even look at me. Maybe I should have approached him, but I didn't, mainly because he gave every indication that any approach I made would be rebuffed. Button said that all changed when he outperformed Villeneuve a few times and scored some points. And by Monaco, he had eight points to Jack's three. He said after that, Villeneuve began to thaw and was suddenly a nice guy. He said as they became closer, Jack admitted that his hostility towards Button had never been personal, but more a sign of him being upset that his manager Craig Pollock had been ousted and Jack felt Button was the personal signing of new boss Richards. Karim, what do you make of all that? Well, I can tell you that they get on well now because I spent some time with both of them together in, in Mexico and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely all water under the bridge. Look, I think Jacques still at that point saw BAR as his team, didn't he? Um, his nose had been put out of joint by the fact that David Richards was brought in. And, you know, Jacques, Jacques uh, is an interesting character. I, you know, I, I like Jacques because he's outspoken and says what he thinks and he, he is left field. And I think he's quite good fun and good value for that. But I imagine also at that time, working with him was probably not an easy thing to do. Um when DR joined the team, you know, Jack was not happy about that. And and he, for many years, saw, saw that being the first step towards him being booted out of the team. Whereas actually, I think, um, and, and I think DR's confirmed this publicly as well, but, you know, quite recently, in fact, uh, you know, he and Jack um, had some time together and clear the air about 
that era of F1. You know, it's taken them nearly 20 years to talk through how and why that whole thing played out the way it did. Um, and now I know they get on they get on well now, um, but it's taken uh, a long time. So I think in Jacques' case at that point, he's seen more and more people coming into what he perceived to be his team. He was kind of sold this dream in 1998 that he was going to go there as this almost team owner driver, wasn't he? In a Bruce McLaren-esque, Jack Brabham sort of way. And that was clearly not going to be the case as uh, as time was unfolding. And seeing Jensen come along was another piece that he didn't like. Uh, he probably saw Jensen at the time as this playboy kid who Flavio had been blasting in all the papers after their time <laughs> at Benetton and didn't realize how good a driver Jensen was because Jensen, you know, Jensen was an exceptionally good racing driver um, who sort of lost his way a little bit at Benetton. But his first year at Williams showed that he was an exceptional driver who went on to be world champion. And um, so, yeah, I think Jacques felt probably that Jensen had to earn his respect. Um, and, and, and he did, in fairness. Jensen, as you, know, as you said in the points, quite early in that season did that. Yeah, and in fairness, it didn't take very long, at least. And uh, good to know everybody's friends now as well. Now, inevitably, for this early 2000s era of F1, there was a row brewing between FIA President Max Mosley and F1's engine manufacturers. And this time, it was primarily over customer engine costs. Mosley wanted the manufacturers to make customer engines available to the independent teams, which at this point were only Sauber, Jordan and Minardi, for $10 million. And in exchange for this, the FIA would continue to allow traction control to be legal in 2004 at the request of the manufacturers. Mosley said the manufacturers were out of touch with reality with how much they were spending. And in his book years later, he said that Mercedes boss Norbert Howe had told him that collectively the car companies were spending $1.5 billion a year on F1. Max said that if something wasn't done quickly, the small teams will disappear. That would force the manufacturer teams to run three cars, and he then predicted that one by one, they would decide it was too expensive and the whole thing would collapse. So, Ben, was this a fair warning from Max, or was he over-egging how perilous the F1's situation was at this point? Uh, well, this is kind of his perennial occupation, isn't it? The endless cycle of boom and bust and how to, to manage that. I mean, by this point, you've had the new manufacturer boom of the new millennium, stabilizes and then inevitably there are some cracks starting to appear and everyone has to ask itself what's coming i think the loss of arrows will be playing on mosley's mind a bit jordan's obviously only a couple of seasons away from disappearing and i'd say definitely on the decline you know they've lost their honda engine deal so i can imagine eddie's kind of nibbling away too saying oh it's costing me a fortune to buy these customer engines he wouldn't have gone quietly would he yeah exactly Prost is long gone by this point. So you've only got Jordan, Sauber, Minardi as independent teams. And of course, then the manufacturers do pull out en masse, you know, years later after the financial crash. But even when that does happen, in 2009, we still had 10 teams. It's just that BAR Honda becomes Braun, Jordan becomes Force India, Jaguar becomes Red Bull, Minardi becomes Toro Rosso, eventually BMW becomes Sauber again, and Renault became Lotus. So... What really happened is that all the fickle manufacturers that mostly were so worried were going to blow Formula One up by spending too much money are replaced by over-enthusiastic independents, mostly backed up by the sort of rich entrepreneurs that Bernie always thought were queuing up to get a piece of the action anyway. So 
until we've had kind of price caps and and more regulation to get spending under control, this was inevitably going to happen every time in different cycles of Formula One. And of course, even in the hybrid era, we had complicated formulas around who should supply who if someone couldn't get an engine supply and caps being asked for on the amount of money that manufacturers could charge because obviously for manufacturer teams who are spending a lot of money on their engine programs, it's a great way to recoup some of the cost if they can just charge a fortune to another team to to supply them an engine. Yeah, it's kind of a problem that has never quite gone away. But I do think I do think Max was probably right in in spirit, even if the 10 million thing, the specifics of the 10 million thing might have been too low. The manufacturers said they couldn't supply engines to customers in 2004 because they had too much on their hands getting new engines ready to last the entire weekend that season. Although Renault and Toyota both said they could take on an extra supply in 2005. However, every manufacturer pushed back against that price of $10 million. Renault president Patrick Faure said, for $10 million, we are losing money. And he said he didn't think it was right that someone could impose a specific price. He suggested that $15 million was more realistic. He said Renault didn't want to make money from it, but they couldn't make a loss. And he said they would rather partner up with a second team than just do a straight customer supply deal. Jaguar boss Tony Pennell said on behalf of Ford and Cosworth that engines were terrifically expensive to produce and couldn't be made on the cheap. And he felt that the talk of engines being fully affordable was nice and vague. Mosley's response to all of that was pretty simple. He said if inexpensive engines were not forthcoming, then the FIA would insist on banning traction control because it wasn't good for F1. Karun, any any sympathy for the manufacturers there as we kind of lay out their position in all this? Love a bit of F1 politics. <laughs> we miss that, don't we? Max versus the teams. Max and Bernie versus the teams. We miss that these days. Everyone's too friendly nowadays. Yeah, not enough stirring the pot. Not enough stirring the it's pot. It's FIA versus the teams now, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not quite as exciting, is it? No, I suppose not, no. Um, no, I think... I get it. You know, they didn't want to lose money, and that's business. But what I was actually trying to work out while you were saying that bit, Glenn, was... You know, only four, five years later, the engine price came down to five million. Funny that. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, it's 2010. They came down to the Cosworth five million engine and everyone had to supply the engine at five million. So um, it just shows how quickly with the R&D costs get amortized across, um, you know, once you start producing it. And, you know, there they're, they're talking about the engine having to last a weekend. And now we're talking about engines doing six, seven weekends. It's um, it's amazing how F1 changes. Um, no, I mean, you know, for the amount of money they were spending in the sport, I think the reality is, you know, it's there, there is some amount of responsibility for the manufacturers who are involved in the sport to try and keep the sport going um, and keep it alive. But it's a balancing act, isn't it? You know, they're, they're also not a charity. They're not in it to, to to lose heaps and heaps of money. So I think it's a it's a balance which, you know, was part of a little political battle, wasn't it? Yeah, politics never very far in F, away in F1, especially, especially, as you said, in the, in the Max and Bernie era. But talking of the works teams, Jaguar was settling into life after its latest round of sweeping managerial changes ahead of 2003. And boss Tony Pennell was using Ferrari as a yardstick to plan for long-term success. Pennell said in Monaco that he'd been told it took Ferrari eight to ten years to get from the depths to the heights, and he thought that was a reasonable time frame. He said he didn't think Jaguar could do it any quicker than that, 
but he was hoping to just make steady progress as the years roll by. <laughs> ben, do you think if Jaguar had stuck around for eight to ten years after this, rather than 18 months, could it have got <laughs> things right? <laughs> well, I suppose let's let's take him at his word and work it out. So Ferrari at their depths, he's talking about 92, 93, those guess, winless yeah. seasons post-Prost, so, but still finishing in the top four in the championship, getting podiums by 94, 95 winning races, then signing the best driver, stalling a top technical team to harness the driver. That's paying off by 97 and then really paying off from 2000 to kind of this point. On the Jaguar timeline, 2000 to 01 is the 92, 93 depths. They're what, ninth and eighth in the points. 2002, they kick on to seventh, but no wins, just one podium. So by the 95, 96 part of the story, they've revamped the driver lineup signed Mark Webber looks quite promising he was good in this period started to score points more often but they're getting beaten by Sauber in the championship this season and the year after so I think we we all know they needed a major revamp and a kind of massive injection of impetus that just wasn't going to come from simply rolling along and hoping for steady improvement I think that's okay if you're a plucky independent team but not if you're a major car manufacturer looking to to win and I think it's that sort of perceived lack of ambition that uh, cost them in the end. You know, you needed you needed you need someone to come in with a with a better vision and a, a, a preparedness to kind of uproot the the state corporate culture, which is obviously ultimately what Dietrich Mateschitz did. I don't know if it was lack of ambition because they had all the ambitions; they just didn't execute it very well. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they wanted to do well. They wanted to win and they wanted to globally True. dominate the world, but they just. You know, they tried to run it like every other part of a, of the automotive industry. And Formula One is so, so specialized. In some ways, you, you, you know, you, you just can't. And I think it's even worse in some ways because the actual 99 Stewart car was really good. It was a quick car as an independent team. Okay, with, with Ford Works engines, but, you know, they were still an independent team. And you thought that is a fantastic launch pad. That was a better launch pad than, than you know, uh, let's say Sauber would have had even with a bit of Mercedes backing or Jordan had coming into F1. You know, they, they had an amazing opportunity to capitalize on that 99 car and hit the ground running straight away in 2000. But you just have to listen to some of Gary Anderson's stories about <laughs> 2000 and you realize that they just had no chance with the, with the culture that was operating in the team at the time and you talk to you know Eddie Irvine I think Eddie Irvine is actually a really good person to to actually answer this question isn't it because he was there at Ferrari when it was a mess in the early part of 96 and they were blowing up on the formation lap and things like that and saw their transformation to becoming title contenders and um he, he I think he's written, it's in his book isn't it that book uh, he wrote across 99 2000 of just what a mess Jaguar was when he got there and just couldn't believe the cultural difference and suddenly admire Jean Todd for the work he did much more. Yeah, and uh, in fairness to Pennell, maybe he was right about the timeline because seven years after this, Red Bull was winning its first world championship out of effectively <laughs> the same factory. It just, uh, it just wasn't Jaguar. but Got there in the end. Yeah. Talking of, uh, you both mentioned the culture a lot there. So let's uh, let's pick up on that in 2003. Pennell praised Ford's ownership of the team, saying they leave us to get on with it. 
But, uh, but say, if you would like our involvement in any aspect of the car or you want to use any of our facilities, then just ask. They certainly don't interfere and they certainly don't force their will on us. He said it was a good relationship, <clears throat> which worked along the lines of, if we want it, they will supply it. Karun, does that sound like the Ford we all remember from their time owning an F1 team? No, I was trying to work out where his version of events has come from because probably his pay packet <laughs> that comes quite it's i mean again you know i i don't i, don't, I wasn't there in that era we don't know but every other person seems to talk about yeah, the no interference one else has said this, from, no everyone else has talked about the interference coming from across the pond and and to be fair you know you're quoting tony panel you know from that time Yes. And he probably had to play the right PR line and play with a straight bat and, and say the right things. I do wonder if you got him on this podcast today, whether he'd be, you know, saying a slightly different different version of what happened at that point. Yeah, that can go. That can be one of the list of the targets. Uh, can be one of our targets, can't it? Maybe also he's, I mean, it's, I try to remember the time off the top of my head, but it's probably a bit too early from the Jaguar definitely disappearing phase and handing over to Mataschitz, but... Maybe there's maybe at this point they're just starting to lose proper interest. So he might be right in saying that they're leaving us alone at this point because they've just given up. Whereas obviously beforehand, when they were really engaged, they were meddling and ruining the whole thing. But it was only sort of late 2004, wasn't it, when they had the sort of budget cuts across the board, and then they they uh, you know Ford said they're pulling out a PI and they put Cosworth up for sale and stuff. So we're still it was a bit later. Yeah, we're still yeah. about 18 months away from. From that, I think I think it was more, you know, they they were probably starting to face criticism, weren't they, of of from people like Irvine um, and Gary who had left the team by that stage and being able to f- be free and spill the beans on all the interference from from Jaguar and perhaps yeah. part of Tony's mandate was to try and just just calm the waters publicly on that sort of stuff. So yeah, I, I suspect privately it was something different. Yeah, that makes sense. If you get asked in public, uh, you know, what's your company like to work with? Uh, if you want to stay there, you're probably going to say it's really good. <laughs> Let's stick with manufacturers who spent a lot of money, had little to show for it before they eventually quit F1 and move on to Toyota. This was only Toyota's second year and it was getting used to its brand new driver lineup of Olivier Panis and Cristiano De Mata after Mika Salo and Alan McNish were disposed of at the end of a disappointing first season. But team boss Ove Anderson made a bizarre admission around Monaco where he seemed to suggest Toyota had backed itself into a corner over the signing of De Mata because he'd been promised an F1 drive if he could win the kart title with their engine. Anderson said... Everybody thinks it was because of commercial reasons in Brazil, but this is this is not the case at all. They just wanted to honour him for what he did. Fair enough, but it gets worse. Cristiano very much wanted to get into Formula One and Toyota promised to give him this opportunity, but it's an open situation. Maybe there will be a time coming when we cannot afford to be honourable anymore. At the moment, I think we can, but if we want to win, then one day we will have to take a tougher approach than the one we have right now. Given we've just been talking about a guy who won't probably isn't telling the truth because, you know, that's <laughs> not what you necessarily do in, in public. Ben, was this a bit unfair of Anderson to to put this out there or am I reading too much into it? No, I think it's quite blunt for a team <laughs> boss to basically openly say he doesn't want 
one of the drivers he's got in the car. Also because Demata was quite decent. He had a reasonable record in the States, obviously. I know it's not the smoothest transition always for drivers to come across to F1, but he made a decent job of it. I think second race, he was only fractionally off Panis. Okay, Panis is not you know, a, a, an all-time great, but he was a Grand Prix winner and very experienced. And Monaco, he out-qualifies Panis. So, you know, he was finding his feet. He beats him in the championship. I think having him seemed like an upgrade on what McNish and Salo were at the point in 02 when they binned off. So I can only imagine there's some kind of political wrangling going on behind the scenes and Anderson's just unhappy that his his opinion is not carrying enough weight. I suppose a team that's still coming up can afford to carry a, a lesser driver if they, if they have to um, for a period. But I don't think that's really what was going on here. If they're honouring a commitment they've made to a driver based on his success, that seems better than just giving him the driver because he's got a load of Brazilian sponsors. But obviously, uh, uh, my namesake had a different opinion. <laughs> but like the whole thing is just bizarre, isn't it? In in the the decisions across that entire period of Toyota and F1 because they didn't win not because they're drivers. They didn't win because the car wasn't quick enough for and that's a whole other conversation um you know mcnish top quality driver uh salo showed in 99 that given the right circumstances which was only two years before he could be there or thereabouts in the fight if he needed to be um you know they had ralph they had yano they had uh as you say you know demata they, they had solid drivers panis they they had drivers who, uh, if they had the tools, would have been capable enough to get the car, you know, regularly in the points and 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 do do a good job. In reality, you only attract the A plus listers. You're only going to attract M Schumacher instead of R Schumacher <laughs> if you produce a car that was going to be good enough to win the world championship. Because that was what Michael was there to do. And you know, you weren't going to get a Kimi or an Alonso or a Montoya, unless unless the car was quick enough, frankly, at that point. Even uh, even McNish and Salo have said, really, you know, they were scapegoated for the first year when the car was just rubbish. Yeah. Um, but talking of drivers forcing their way into F1, which it appears is what Damata did, Justin Wilson's manager, ex-F1 driver Jonathan Palmer, of course, announced that the innovative share scheme that had been launched to fund Wilson's drive with Minardi was oversubscribed. £1.2 million had been raised since the share scheme launched at the start of the season. And with all the shares claimed, potential investors who were late to the party were having their money returned to them. Shareholders were signing up in anticipation of making money as Wilson's career developed and he earned bigger salaries. His pay was capped at £50,000 in the first year, £75,000 for year two and £100,000 for year three. And any extra money earned beyond that would go to the shareholders. Palmer said uh, share applications have been coming in every day during the first part of the season. And it showed there was a huge appetite from the public to own a bit of a Formula One driver. Minardi boss Paul Stoddart, who gave Wilson his big break, called it the best idea Formula One has seen for many a year. Karun, what did you think of Justin Wilson PLC for funding an F1 career? Did you ever consider going down that route? I did. And I tried it and failed dismally. 
I, ah, you weren't oversubscribed. No, we. Um, I, I tried a similar campaign called Racing for India, in uh, when I was trying to get a budget for F three, I couldn't couldn't get a, enough of a budget, um, and yeah, we just couldn't get the uptake. And uh, the the idea came from what Justin and Jonathan Palmer did. I thought it was really smart, you know, good thinking by Jonathan. There, um, he's a shrewd businessman. You know, we've seen what he's done. Um, in his business career, post driving with with the MSV circuits and Palmer Sport and all that, he's a very very clever man, and I I thought they did really well. You know, to raise the money that they had to do wasn't easy, um, and fair play to them, they they made it work. Yeah, I thought it was a really clever clever scheme. I'm surprised you haven't seen it tried more often. This being 2003, we obviously have to discuss the qualifying format as this was the first year when F1 properly started playing around with qualifying, abandoning the one hour session that had been in place since 1996 to bring in one shot qualifying. And Bernie Eccleston wasn't happy with how that change was going. He felt the entire field going one at a time was less of a spectacle and he'd have preferred a normal session that ended with a top 10 Super Bowl shootout at the end. But FIA President Max Mosley had no interest in changing it at this stage. Max said, every time you talk to Bernie, he's got a new angle on it. There are about three different versions. There's no way it's going to change this season. There doesn't seem to be enough evidence that we need a change, nor is there a clear proposal which is obviously better than what we've got now. We need to go through the season and see how it works. Max added that while the new format was less intense than the way the final few minutes of the old qualifying hour used to play out, he reminded everybody that beforehand you sat there for half an hour and nothing happened at the beginning of qualifying. Ben, we've talked about one-shot qualifying plenty of times before on here, but what about the Super Bowl suggestion? We've never seen that in F1. Would you like to see them try it? Well, we, I guess we kind of got there in the end with Q3 because that's a that's a top ten shootout, isn't it? That's a that's a super pole session. So Bernie kind of got his wish ultimately, but then again, he wasn't always on the money with these kind of things. I remember when he pushed elimination qualifying oh through for 2016, and they reversed out of it after two races because of that exact problem that Max was describing that you had cars just sitting there not doing anything. So you sacrifice a big part of the session overall for a bit of extra added excitement at the end. At this point in time, I was a big fan of one-shot qualifying. I liked, as a fan, being able to focus on each car specifically. And I actually quite enjoyed the jeopardy of each driver being at the mercy of kind of prevailing conditions or running order or something changing all of a sudden. So, yeah, I'm I'm on Max's side, really. I, I like the idea that the whole session was more interesting rather than not being able to follow it properly and then just waiting for something to happen at the end. It was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, like the whole, first of all, the thing of qualifying the race fuel was utter nonsense because I, you know, this, this Monaco race that we're talking about in this episode is a prime example of it. It's like all of a sudden, oh, wait, Schumacher's got another 15 kilos of fuel in qualifying. Oh, well, then we got, so you didn't actually know who was the fastest qualifier till the first pit stop. And then you, it's just, it's a, it's annoying. It's just nonsense. Um, I, I think, I, I, I really like the format we have now in qualifying. I feel like it builds up this crescendo. You get, you know, you get that challenge of do people run one or two sets of tires? Do they save, you know, for Q3? Do they think they're going to get through? We get a result every few minutes. It kind of builds up to this crescendo. 
And every time a conversation starts around, ooh, what should we do with qualifying? It's like, stop, <laughs> stop teaching qualifying. It's the one bit of the weekend that, that doesn't need changing. So, um, yeah, I mean, the one lap thing was fine, but then with track evolution and all that sort of stuff, it never, ever felt pure. It always, you know, with the combination of race fuel, track evolution, you just never felt like you had a pure quality result. Yeah, the race fuel thing, I, I can see that was a bit bit needless but obviously at this point i was just desperate for anything to end the schumacher ferrari hegemony so oh yeah we all uh, were so you know I, i'd take it I, I did i did enjoy the spectacle but maybe also you know, going back to it's 20 years obviously maybe it was just the fact it was different and and not obviously worse whereas what happened in 2016 which was kind of a fiddling of what we have now definitely was worse yeah and i, w- I would agree that the format now of three segments that builds to a top 10 shootout is about the best i can't think of an automatic format that's better than that i think you could do one shot qualifying without the fuel element to make it a fairer test but it wouldn't automatically be an improvement yeah i liked i liked the change at the time but i did eventually come around to the idea that it was very samey you know every car every car is on sort of screen for 90 seconds and it all kind of looks the same after a while but i did like the fact that you get one go at it and if you mess up um then you also get a bit of a mixed up grid so super pole i'd be interested in um you know even i've said that's what they should do with sprint qualifying keep q1 q2 or whatever and then just have your q3 as a super pole just to give that a point of differentiation um because yeah i'd be interested to see it and then you put those 10 guys under pressure to deliver when it counts by the monaco weekend there were rumblings about a contract extension between Williams and BMW being held up. Williams's Patrick Head said that any new deal would need both sides to work more closely together, but he felt they were already doing that to a certain extent. He said that the partnership would be more successful if BMW had a more permanent presence at Williams's Grove base, but he also warned we can't be limited. Adding people is fine, but removing our authority for areas on the car other than the engine is something we are not prepared to accept. Speaking recently on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast, then BMW Motorsport boss Mario Tyson said Williams and BMW operated as more or less two separate activities. But that was fine for BMW because Williams was used to working with works engine partners and BMW, and I quote, didn't have a clue about chassis design and development. He said there was no drive from each side to get into the other's field, so it worked quite well. Eventually, a one-year extension was signed to take Williams' BMW up to the end of 2005, and Tyson said it wasn't actually until the end of 2003 when Williams missed out on the championship that BMW considered looking elsewhere to buy its own team. Kareem, we've talked a lot already about the manufacturer era of F1 was here by this point. So by this stage, was the idea of two separate entities working together in the way Williams and BMW were trying to do it, was that always going to come up short? I don't think so. I think it could have been fine. You know, we saw it with um, McLaren and Mercedes, didn't we? You know, they were, they were unbelievably competitive in 2005 and they were two separate entities. I mean, I think Mercedes had some equity, but really, practically speaking, they ran as two separate teams um, or two separate companies. I, I think it would have been fine. I think the bigger thing is Williams never fully recovered from the aero side from the loss of Adrian Newey. 
you know, if they if you had a newly designed Williams with a BMW engine, that whole era of Formula One would have looked, I think, very different. I don't think we would have seen a Schumacher Ferrari era. We could have arguably seen a Montoya Williams BMW newy era. Um, and, and I think that's one of F1's big what ifs around that um, that period. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's a massive shame, just just given how much power they had. And everyone at Williams has been honest that the cars weren't good enough at this time. And the reason Williams were so competitive was usually because of the engine. There was tension developing between the two sides at this point, this specific point in 2003. In Morris Hamilton's excellent book, uh, I'm going to give it its full name for those of you who want to find it. It's called Williams, the legendary story of Frank Williams and his F1 team in their own words. In there, Jim Wright, who was in charge of the commercial side of the team, said just a few weeks before Monaco at the Spanish Grand Prix, a drawing had been leaked of a snail with the caption written in German that said the new Williams F1 car. And that went down very badly at Williams. Tyson played this sort of thing down in his Beyond the Grid interview, saying there was always some joking between both sides. He said Williams mechanics always called the engine the spacer and that BMW paid them back with jokes of their own. So what do you think, Ben? Is this just harmless fun? I think maybe to an extent, but it probably does speak to the underlying tensions. You know, Karim was talking very well about the you know, the fact in this period it was quite common to have the two separate entities and obviously McLaren and Mercedes worked well where there were still underlying tensions between Newey's radical aero ideas and what the engine could take. You know, there was lots of unreliability for McLaren in that period and much of it stemmed from packaging as well as the Mercedes engine itself not being bulletproof. And you can imagine in this instance, it's BMW feel like they're pulling their weight. You know, as you say, Williams, people admit that the the chassis weren't keeping up with the power of the engine you know obviously often bmw had the best engine or the most powerful engine but the car was not really the best car in f1 so this is kind of i guess an expression of that underlying tension and it persists even now there's a there's a a, a much greater understanding of the need to have the two entities working in harmony and and ideally having kind of one homogenous base for your your manufacturer team or your works team but even alpine as the temporary team principal bruno family has been talking about this cultural difference between viri and enstone that persists even now that sometimes enstone has built cars and they felt well if you put a mercedes engine it it would win so there's until you get everyone synced up together there's always going to be this side that you're you're slightly separate you just do your job and it's then either the other side's fault they haven't done their job properly or you've let the other side down. And I think that's what's going on here, really. And um, then you've obviously got the BMW asking questions about oh, whether this is the right partner for them. And obviously, you know, then they made their decision and moved on. And it probably was the right one. Like Karun said, if they'd had new, it might have been different, but then they might have still had some of the problems in terms of integrating the packages properly because new was uncompromising. Um, and wouldn't have just allowed, wouldn't have just been grateful for whatever BMW produced. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Before we get to the track action, we have to talk about the track, as this was a year of significant change in Monaco. Not only were the barriers taken away on the inside of the first corner, Sandevot, but more significantly, the final part of the lap was reprofiled thanks to reclaiming land from the Monaco Harbour. This allowed more space to be created for a proper pit complex, while the second part of the swimming pool section was opened up with one of the barriers removed and the run down to Larascas was straighter than it was before. The drivers didn't get too excited about the changes, saying it made the track a little easier and it would hopefully help with lacking, lapping back markers. And Mon- Juan Pablo Montoya said... It would save the team's money because the old Raskas corner was where everybody used to crash. Karim, what did you think of of the changes uh, they made at Monaco? Was it good to see Monaco moving with the times or did we lose some of its character when we started sort of pushing the barriers away and that sort of thing? Well, I think the pit complex, first of all, was a massive, massive change uh, for the good. It's it, it needed to modernise. So I think that was a really good change. Um, I, I, I think the, the change to the barrier at Sandevot came about because of the pit lane exit as well. You know, the, the, the way they had to redesign and reprofile that was probably a better, safer way to do it. Um, and, and it's fine because the corner itself still had that challenge. I do think the swimming pool sections and Raskas became a bit easier, didn't it? Um, having said that, I take the point that actually it allowed... Um, an opportunity to get past backmarkers into Raskas a bit easier, which is probably helpful. So I don't think it's it's too bad, to be honest. You know, if anything, I contrast to the changes happened at places like Spa, for example, with all these massive flat curbs and big wide open tarmac runoffs. And that has genuinely taken away a lot of the character and challenge of the circuit, where I think Monaco still remains. Because cars got bigger and bigger, right? So from when... You go back to those 80s and 90s cars, cars were getting bigger and bigger. And the ones we have now, they would have been really slow through that whole section of the track with it being narrower just because of the size of the car. So they barely fit through it. Yeah. So I think, the, you know, it's, it's right that the track evolved a bit along with the, with the cars and the sport. I'd almost forgotten that Raskas used to be any different <laughs> when I look back. Was that Ivan Capelli video? Remember that where he gets he's yeah. stuck on the barrier, like <laughs> on two wheels with two two wheels on top of the barrier. And I find uh, Montoya's comment quite interesting. Oh, that's where everyone used to crash. But I feel like the changes just moved the inevitable crash a bit further back. Yeah, to the one second quarter part the, earlier. <laughs> yeah, to the second part of the swimming pool because I think in this weekend, Frentzen has a crash in his Sauber, which is essentially the same crash we see almost every year, once a year, somebody clipping clipping the curb rog or the, the barrier and taking out their front tyre and then ending up in the barrier on the other side. 
So I think it still retains some of the jeopardy, even though it was made a bit faster. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's get to the track action then. And there was a big story on Saturday morning when Jensen Button suffered a nasty crash exiting the tunnel, which ended up ruling him out of the race. Button had locked the rear wheels on the brakes coming out of the tunnel, smashing into the barrier on the left-hand side of the track, then hurtling towards the barrier that was just past the entry to the chicane, to the, the kind of in front of the corner. He was briefly knocked out and wrote in his book that when he came back around, his vision came back before his hearing. So marshals were talking to him, but he didn't know what they were saying. When F1 Dr. Sid Watkins got to him, Button heard him ask, where does it hurt? And Jensen responded by saying everywhere. And he added that in his book, he was surprised and really quite pleased to hear the sound of my own voice because that was the concrete proof I wasn't dead. Button said that when he was put in the ambulance, he asked a nurse if he was going to be OK. And she said, I don't know. When he got uh, once he got to hospital, Button's main focus was on getting sent back to the track so he could take part in qualifying. But a doctor intervened, saying he wasn't going anywhere because we've seen your brain waves and they are all over the place. Ben, nasty accident. Did you get Carl Venlinger nineteen ninety four vibes from this crash? This is a even today. This is a tough part of the Monaco track to make safe, isn't it? Yeah, almost impossible, I think, given the location of the escape road and the separation of that from the main track where the marshal's post is, etc. Like, basically, it's unchanged all the way through and you're at the mercy of how you how you impact uh, if you go off there. Um, nor- ordinarily, you just said, oh, well, fortunate for Jensen that he didn't go head first into the, into the barriers or head on into the barriers. But, of course, they had hands devices by this point, which are designed to alleviate that kind of impact so him going in sideways actually and then his head violently shaking from one way to the other probably impacting with that barrier as well it's the worst kind of accident you can have there and Sergio Perez had pretty much an identical impact to that eight years later and had to miss the race so just one of those very specific I think unfortunate circumstances that can happen at Monaco fortunately doesn't happen too often but when it does, it can be quite serious. And of course, you know, on these podcasts, we have an, an almost inevitable concussion type accident uh, at some point. And, and this is that one, you know, again, quite lucky. I, I sort of admire the, the nurse's medical honesty there, not just telling Jensen what he wanted to hear. I um, actually had a bit of an idea about that, because, um, you know... Have you got the solution? Come on, Karun. Possibly, because I think what what you want to do is is change what is a you know a harsh impact into you know that that where that barrier ends effectively which Jensen went into um you know that that's when it's a dead stop right so if you actually curved the barrier along the right hand side so you come out of the tunnel the barrier on the right if you made it a curved barrier that ran and joined that um the centerpiece shall we call it then you get the glancing blow accident like they have at Indianapolis type corners, you know, so it's, it's um, so you don't have the dead stop of a, of a T-bone style accident or a, you run along the a barrier. 90 degree. Yeah, you run a parallel thing and effectively it'll feed them out onto the straight. So do you get rid of the escape road? So it'll block off the escape road. Yeah, so it'll end up blocking off the escape road, which is the challenge, I guess, because they want to give people some escape. But really... How many people actually still go down that escape road? Most people either lock the brakes under braking, hit the wall on the right, and then 
go down there. But you you know you've had the crash by then, so you just keep mm. you you feed out onto that straight. The trouble is then if there's cars coming around the chicane, you end up having that collision there. But skittling basically. Yeah, I don't know. I I think there's there are ways to try and there's got to be a way to try and get around that a bit better because having that um, island just there is just bizarre really yeah it's a bit like the end of the pit wall on ovals isn't it there's, there's no there's yeah. no elegant way to to hit that which uh, so it's yeah been nasty for a long time now despite buttons wish to take part in the rest of the weekend which was partly motivated by the fact he'd been third fastest in friday qualifying the race went on without him in the first stint Pole sitter Ralph Schumacher led a Williams 1-2 as Montoya jumped the other front row starter of Kimi Raikkonen to run second. Ralph dropped back as the race went on, though, getting shuffled back in the pit stops and ending up fourth behind Montoya, Raikkonen and the recovering Michael Schumacher, who went longer than everyone else, as Karun mentioned earlier, on fuel in both stints to get some clear track to climb from fifth on the grid. So let's cover off Michael first, as this was the first defeat for Ferrari's definitive 2003 car, which was introduced at the Spanish Grand Prix and had immediately notched up back-to-back wins. There'd been lots of talk before the weekend about if Ferrari were worried about slower cars qualifying on lighter fuel loads to get higher up the grid. Uh, as this, as we mentioned earlier, this was the first year where you qualified with your race start fuel load on board. Schumacher had been pretty dismissive of that ahead of the weekend, saying anyone who tried this would be no real concern to him because their light fuel load would make them quick at the start, but then they'd pit early and be out of his way. But in the end, he complained of being stuck behind Jano Trulli's Renault, which pitted six laps before him. Ferrari's Ross Braun said that the team's strategy was a good one and that it was the team's performance in qualifying rather than its fuel load that let it down. Corinne, this is early in the days of qualifying on race fuel loads. Do you think Ferrari underestimated how important it was to balance that traditional race strategy versus going light enough to have your track position from the start? I think, um, you know, Ferrari, particularly Ross Braun, they, they were the masters of strategy ever since refueling came in, first at Benetton, then at Ferrari, obviously, him and Michael. But I think they probably knew that weekend that the Michelin tyres seemed to be more competitive on on the Monaco Street surface and the temperature and whatever it was that weekend, it did look like heading as the weekend unfolded. The Michelin cars were were a bit quicker, so they just thought, let's think outside the box. You know, let's try and do something different, capitalize, and, and by going longer in the first stint, you know, they probably thought to themselves, we're not quick enough on the Bridgestones to get pole. We're not going to get track position here. So what we'll do is, you know, when other people pit and we've got a light car, we'll just try and hammer it and, and gain some track position. And in fairness, he did gain a bit, didn't he? He ended up jumping Ralph um, and, and jumping truly as well, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So Michael did gain by doing that strategy. Ultimately, he wasn't quick enough in that early part of the race to jump Kimi or Montoya and, and therefore ended up on their tail. So... I I think it was classic Ross Braun strategy of look, we we're not quick enough to win the race. We're probably you know on pure pace, going to be P five P six. But if we can think outside the box, we could sneak a podium. And lo and behold, they did. It's interesting you mentioned the tyres there because Ferrari 
really pointed the finger at Bridgestone here with Schumacher saying, on the tyre side, we didn't look too good this weekend. He said the race pace was not far off, but he put the track position problem down to the tyres in qualifying. Team boss John Tott had said Ferrari expected Schumacher to jump into the lead by his second stop, but the gap to Montoya and Raikkonen actually went out during that phase, which Tott diplomatically put down to the car-tyre package. Bridgestone disagreed with its technical manager, Hiseo Suganuma, saying that Schumacher was able to push hard in clear air, and he pointed out that Ferrari were 1-2 in Friday qualifying when we weren't running with race fuel loads, so the tyres can't have been too bad over a single lap. He said, uh, Suganuma said, I think we perhaps suffered with a different fuel strategy from some of our rivals, adding that Ferrari, the Ferraris had a tough first stint because they were further back on the grid than normal. So Ben, we've got two sides of the argument here, really. Karun's talked about Ferrari perhaps maximising a bit of a tyre disadvantage. Bridgestone seemed to think that their tyres were fine. Do you think Ferrari, were they trying to look for a way out by blaming the tyres? Was that why they didn't win in Monaco? Maybe. Imagine that it could be a bit of both at play here. So obviously Michelin are getting stronger in Formula 1. They haven't been back in for that long, but they're you know, starting to find their head. And So you're going to start to see a bit more of a swing in performance based on that. And this clearly was a weekend where you know they those Michelin tyre teams see, did seem a bit stronger. At the same time, you've then got this this new strategic element of qualifying on the field that you have to start the race on. So it's kind of qualifying is like your first stint of the race. You don't just get to go for pure pace on light tanks and then work it all out later. You've kind of got to do it as a homogenous whole. And that obviously then means compromises between how you use the tyres, how you set up the car, how much fuel you go for. I think in this early stage of the season as well, there's a, a bias towards trying to go long with that first in how basically how heavy a car can we get away with qualifying to give us that flexibility later in the race but of course uh alonso wins the hungarian grand prix later in the season and pat simmons uh is quite proud of saying they twigged actually it was better to short fuel the car for qualifying and then get the track position advantage and not worry so much about how that played out in terms of traffic management in the race obviously hungaring a little bit more expansive than monaco but not too dissimilar in this era of Formula One. So maybe you still got a situation where, as genius as he was, Ross Braun and his team were a little bit stuck in their ways in terms of how they how they manage the strategy. They haven't quite twigged the best way in this particular environment to, to get the most out of the strategy. So you've kind of got an unhappy compromise in, on both sides. And even then, it was still only third place. It's interesting you mentioned the, the Renault thing there. I remember seeing an article, I think it was on the McLaren website, where they talked about they didn't twig the short fueling thing until 2006. I think it was there was a race where they knew Raikkonen had a grid penalty, so they short fueled him to get him tenth on the grid. Basically, they had to be fastest in qualifying, and then he had a really good race through the pack because he was light at the start. And they went, actually, that's a faster way to do the race than all the computers were saying. It just shows <laughs> this was such a big change for all the teams to get their head around, and as you said, to to understand that qualifying wasn't just qualifying anymore i think you're right to say it's effectively the first part of the race let's move up a step on the podium to raikkonen uh, in second place he stopped later than montoya at both rounds of stops although not as late as schumacher and he felt back markers had prevented him from jumping the williams 
Kimmy was obviously vague about it, but team boss Ron Dennis was more direct, specifically blaming Jacques Villeneuve. Boo. Ron <laughs> said uh, Villeneuve was very slow in letting Kimmy pass at a critical time in the race and that marshals were slow to put blue flags out. And when they finally did, Villeneuve ignored them for several corners, which cost us the win. He said McLaren was certain Raikkonen would have come out ahead of Montoya without that hold-up, but he rejoined almost three seconds behind him. Karun, people blaming traffic for costing a win in Monaco. Is that just what everyone does who finishes second here? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think you're just being particularly hurt because he blames Jacques Villeneuve, surely. <laughs> um, I, I think in a way it's true, isn't it? You know, they... Kimmy, Kimmy was pretty close um, towards the, I think it was the second stop that he, he came out. It was, it was quite close with him and Montoya as it as the cycle played out. But I also think Montoya just had a bit more pace in in the early part. He seemed to be struggling at the end, wasn't it? They, they basically in the last stint they got him to turn the engine down because if you remember the race before in Austria. I think it was a week or maybe two weeks before he was leading the race and the engine went pop. So the BMW engine was the most powerful at the time, but it was still a little bit on the edge in terms of reliability. Um, but I think on pure pace, you know, I think Montoya probably would have had him covered even without um, Kimi getting stuck behind Villeneuve. I mean, there's quite a few examples in his race, actually, of backmarkers not doing a great job of getting out of the way. It's interesting how the the way that is viewed in F1's rules has changed so much and it's almost it's too strict the other way now where you have to jump out of the way yeah. immediately. So Raikkonen and uh, Schumacher ran Montoya very close for the win because as Karun mentioned, uh, Montoya was slowing down at the end. 1.7 seconds covered the top three at the flag. We'll come back to Montoya's engine problems in a moment. Firstly, we have to address the fact this was Williams' first win in Monaco for 20 years since that famous Keke Rosberg win in 1983. <laughs> Montoya's quotes are great on this. He initially said it was great to bring this race to Williams, although as that same sentence <laughs> carried on, it turned into, I was more concerned about myself than Williams, to be honest, but as we're in the same team, I guess it was well worth it. <laughs> Patrick Head called the 20-year wait a hell of a long time. But he added that the win was more important for Williams' season because the team had underperformed in the first part of the year. Ben, when you think of how many dominant cars Williams had between these two victories, and I'm sure you can see Damon Hill's 96 car smoking out of the tunnel now. Ugh. Yeah, he's rubbing the tears away from his eyes. Is it a bit ridiculous that they had to wait so long, 20 years to, between Monaco victories? At Williams's, this was Williams' best time in F1. Yeah, this is probably the last season where they were a real force in F1. It, the decline began after this, really, didn't it? And it's just been kind of mini revivals since then. We're waiting, still waiting for them to come back. I think I forgive them the first 10 years of that 20-year drought because you basically had Prost and Senna getting in the way, and McLaren particularly. Um, then there's then there's some definite missed opportunities in the 90s. You know, 95, the strategy against Benetton. 96, as you mentioned, Hill his engine expiring when he had the race sewn up. 97, Frentzen botched the start in the mixed conditions. Well, the the, the slick tyre choice was a, left a bit to be desired as well. Well, indeed, it? yeah. So, you know, but he had the pole position and, and didn't capitalise. So there's kind of three in a row where things have gone a little bit differently. 
they could have won, could have had a hat trick, and then it wouldn't have seemed like such a big deal. Um, and then, of course, Montoya messed messed up from pole in O two, and the car broke down. So there's a bit bit of bit of vengeance for that too. Um, so yeah, ten, 10 years of that is fair enough, but I think probably three or four with better execution, they could have could have added to their tally a bit sooner. I think if you go back, it was eighty seven as well, wasn't it? Mansell, um, Mansell was in a position to win that race, and then something something broke down on the car. I can't remember exactly, and Senna ended up winning it. It was the first Senna win, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, there you go. So there's another one. Well, ninety two as well. Mansell was yeah, walking yeah. that race before the. The, exactly. Yeah, the need for the late pit stop. We've covered that race before. And, and ninety three was it? Prost did a sort of semi jump start, then stalled twice on the <laughs> trying to get it going again. Um, so yeah, there's there's a few that got away, wasn't it? Yeah, calamitous. Um, yeah. And this one nearly slipped through Williams's fingers too. The reason they were so close. Uh, was because, as Kareem mentioned, Montoya was running with his engine turned down to manage a problem. Patrick Head called it one or two little warnings on the data at the time. But in Morris Hamilton's Williams book, Jim Wright said it was a bit more dramatic than that. Jim told Morris that in the closing laps, Montoya was complaining of a lack of power and the engineers told him they turned the engine down because of temperature problems. Montoya was screaming on the radio, saying if he wasn't given more power, he was going to crash trying to keep Raikkonen behind. A compromise was reached to give him more revs through the tunnel to protect him into the chicane, but the temperatures were still climbing. Jim said the car made it to Park Ferme with puddles of water underneath it, so it was a repeat of the burst radiator that Karun mentioned that had struck Montoya in Austria as well. So we've just discussed, Karun, all those other races that they found a way to lose, and they were very close to throwing this one away as well. They came close, but I think because it's Monaco, as we saw with Daniel Ricciardo in, in 2018, you can manage your pace, can't you? You know, you've got to race until the pit stops are done. You, you can't afford to take it easy until then because there's still a lot to cycle out. But once everyone's sort of pitted and you think, OK, at this point, they're all going to the end, you can back right off. You know, Ricciardo managed to win missing, was it nearly 100 60 horsepower or whatever from the ERS. And um, I think they they were managing it. Uh, this was an era where I feel like we kind of missed that a little bit now. I quite enjoyed having that bit of reliability jeopardy. I know championships were decided by it. You know, Lewis in 2016 or uh, even Kimi 2003. You know, the engine went pop in, in the Nürburgring and you would have won the championship uh, without that. But that was, I felt like a part of the sport. It felt like the drivers and the teams were still on edge, whereas now they get to the first day of testing and they hammer out 800 kilometers, which is just a little bit dull, really. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it just kept a little bit of excitement, didn't it? That, ooh, is his engine going to hang on and can he still hold position? Whereas in reality, in the cockpit, he he was just doing what he needed to do, which is push hard through the tunnel and then... That's the only place people can really overtake. And screaming at the team as well, which seems very Montoya. You're right, oh, though. I think cool. um, standard unreliability was just that added jeopardy factor where at any race, <clears throat> you you had to watch to the end because you didn't know if the cars were going to get there. You'd also have cars. Pace would fluctuate. All of these elements. This, you'd see it a bit earlier than this where someone could be 30 seconds ahead 
and then th- something goes wrong on their car. We don't know about it because we didn't have the team radios and that sort of thing. And suddenly Murray Walker could jump up and get excited because somebody's chasing somebody down. You're right, Karin. Those those elements have gone now. Everybody's kind of in control with, with the odd massive exception um, all the way through. I'm surprised, actually, that they bothered to give him the extra revs for the tunnel. I think that was just because he was so angry about it because I doubt, I doubt that made the difference. I doubt that's what prevented... Raikkonen from overtaking him but let's leave it there then for Monaco 2003 the important thing is Williams got the win and their wait for another Monaco victory has now surpassed 20 years which I don't think any of us would have imagined happening back in 2003 so thanks to Ben and Karun for joining us next time we're covering another Williams story as we revisit Alex Zanardi's disappointing F1 comeback in 1999 and try to work out where it all went so wrong for a man who lit up American racing but was unable to convert that into F1 success in the same way Montoya and Villeneuve did when Williams brought them across the Atlantic. The Athletic.